This American Journal of Gastroenterology podcast. I'm Brian Lacey, Professor of Medicine at the Mayo Clinic Jacksonville and Co-Editor-in-Chief of the American Journal of Gastroenterology, along with Brennan Spiegel, my Co-Editor-in-Chief from Cedars-Sinai in Los Angeles. I am absolutely delighted to be speaking today with Dr. Ozma Shakat, who is the GI Section Chief at the Minneapolis Veterans Affairs Medical Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and also Professor of Medicine at the University of Minnesota. Today, we'll discuss her recent article, ACG Clinical Guidelines, Colorectal Cancer Screening 2021, which will be available online March 4th, 2021 in the American Journal of Gastroenterology. Dr. Shawkat, welcome. Let's begin simply. How important is colorectal screening in the United States? Thank you for having me, Brian. Colorectal cancer is the third most common cancer in both men and women and the second leading cause of cancer-related death. Up to 10% of cancer-related deaths are thought to be from colon cancer, and approximately 140,000 individuals develop colon cancer every year in the U.S. So it's an extremely big deal because it's common and it's lethal. So clearly an important topic, Asma. But what prompted the development of this guideline? Don't we already have all the data we need? Yes, we have a lot of data, which is the reason we chose to provide this guideline. Essentially, we needed to go through all that newer data and see if our recommendations should change and how strong is the evidence that we should perhaps recommend or suggest some changes in our current clinical practice. So this guideline updates the ACG 2009 colon cancer screening guideline. And as you know, there's been a lot of literature since then that we wanted to kind of summarize, digest, and update our recommendations on. Seems like a very timely article then. So Asma, screening has changed a lot over the years. Some of our older listeners will remember doing hemocult tests and performing screening flexible sigmoidoscopies. What options do we have now for colorectal cancer screening? You are correct. Screening has changed quite a bit in terms of what we know about it and also the modalities which we can use for colon cancer screening. And in this regard, colon cancer is rather unique It's the only cancer where we have seven different modalities to use as colon cancer screening tools. And they all have their pros and cons that we've tried to summarize in this document for our audience. But truly the single best test is the one that the patient and the healthcare system is willing to do. So having seven options is sometimes confusing, but it also gives us and our patients more choices to pick from. Amongst these choices are colonoscopy, the fecal immunochemical test, or FIT as we refer to it commonly, the stool DNA test, also known as multi-target stool DNA test. There's a blood-based test for septin 9, a capsule for the colon that detects polyps, CT colonography, and flexible sigmoidoscopy. So those are all modalities of screening tests we have available. So we now have this wealth of options. And when we think about screening, the ideal test is safe, readily available, convenient, accurate, and ideally inexpensive. In your guideline, you and your co-authors discuss one-step or direct tests and two-step or indirect tests. Which one is the ideal test? Right. So there is no ideal test. 
as we outlined, that meets all the criteria that you just mentioned. Therefore, we thought we would frame screening tests into two categories, the single step tests and colonoscopy is the only one in that category, which are diagnostic as well as therapeutic, meaning there's an opportunity to detect and remove polyps or diagnose cancer. All the other tests fall in a two-step category. Think of it as a screening cascade. The first step helps us detect individuals that may have colon cancer or signs that they need a second step test, such as a colonoscopy. And then in the second step, the colonoscopy itself, we can then look for cancers as well as polyps and remove them at that time. So the two-step approach provides us a risk-stratified algorithm to identify people who will benefit the most from a colonoscopy, which, as you know, tends to be an invasive procedure and although rare, but does carry risk of complications. So, Ozma, there is a lot of controversy still in the area of colorectal cancer screening. One more reason for these wonderful guidelines. Let's begin with kind of a key question. When should we start screening our patients? Is it age 45 or is it 50? And does race or ethnicity matter? That is one of the most important areas that there's accumulating evidence over the last decade on. We used to look at colon cancer screening rates in the population and figure out where that risk starts going up. It used to be about 10 years ago, age 50 and older. And hence, a lot of our guidelines recommend colon cancer screening 50 and older. And there's certainly great evidence that screening individuals ages 50 and older does reduce their risk of developing or dying from colon cancer. However, in the last 10 years, we've now realized that there is an increasing incidence of colon cancer in individuals that are younger than 50 Starting at about age 40, but definitely age 45 onwards, there seems to be a much, much higher risk than we ever appreciated before. In particular, the risk of a 45-year-old having colon cancer in today's day and age is the same as the risk of a 50-year-old 10 years ago. So that itself is a compelling argument that we must think about starting screening early and getting this somewhat younger age group in for screening to be able to detect colon cancer and reduce this rising trend in the 45 to 49-year-olds. So in the current guideline, we still have a strong recommendation to screen between the ages of 50 and 75, and we suggest starting colon cancer screening in average risk individuals starting at age 45. So that's one of the new changes in the current guideline. Certainly an important message for our listeners and for our patients. And Ozma, you already mentioned the FIT test or the fecal immunochemical test. And if you could briefly summarize for the average risk individual, what's the data supporting colonoscopy versus FIT? There are no head-to-head studies comparing FIT to colonoscopy. In fact, there are three large randomized controlled trials going on in the world. One is happening in the U.S., and we at our medical center are a part of it. It's called CONFIRM. That's comparing FIT to colonoscopy directly for its benefit in reducing colon cancer incidence and mortality. So without that direct comparison, all we have currently is indirect evidence. And they both have their strengths, and they both seem to be effective in reducing colon cancer incidence and mortality. 
If you look at fecal immunochemical testing, the reduction in colon cancer incidence is about 20%, and the reduction in colon cancer mortality is about 33% sustained over 30 years after screening. For colonoscopy, we don't have good randomized control trial data, and a lot of the observational studies have estimates that range from somewhere between 50 to 90% for reducing the risk of colorectal cancer and reducing risk of dying from colorectal cancer. We are eagerly awaiting some of these newer trials, but in the meantime, both of those are great options for colon cancer screening in the right setting. Very reassuring for our patients and listeners. So Asma, someone declines a colonoscopy. We're obviously biased since that's what we do and we believe they're both diagnostic and therapeutic, as you mentioned, and they choose a FIT test instead. How frequently should FIT testing be done? It seems as if there's a lot of variation in clinical practice. FIT testing is a great tool and a screening method for colon cancer. It needs to be done every year, but there are also studies showing that it can be performed every other year. And that's what a lot of our European counterparts do, which is perform uh, FIT screening every other year. However, in the U.S., we recommend annual FIT testing, and there's fairly compelling data to show that that's an effective strategy in reducing colon cancer incidence and mortality. Let's think about that average risk person just a little bit more, and then we may move on. But let's think about that patient who declines a colonoscopy, and maybe they just can't do fit locally for whatever reason, are there other options available for them? You already mentioned that there are seven options total. One is colonoscopy, the one step, and there are other ones. What other options might they go to? So they have several other two-step options, and sometimes that's what it takes to convince somebody to undergo a colonoscopy. They wouldn't do it right off the bat, but if they are shown evidence that there's another test that shows that they're at increased risk of having either an advanced polyp or cancer, then they might be willing to undergo colonoscopy. And that's a good strategy to bring people to screening also. The other potential options for such patients are a multi-target stool DNA test that has a fit component, but also looks at the stool for methylated markers of some of the common tumor genes. There's also a blood test called septin-9. In addition, there's flexible sigmoidoscopy if they don't want to go a complete colonoscopy, and also colon capsule and CT colonography if those resources are available in their healthcare system. And those are all great options to think about as first line. Once again, it's so nice that patients have options so we can kind of individualize these screening regimens. So Asma, if patients choose one of these tests, and maybe we'll focus on either flexible sigmoidoscopy or the CT colonography or the multi-target stool DNA, how frequently should they be performed in order to be most effective? So all these tests have different intervals that are recommended, and a lot of it is fairly rigorously well-studied. For flexible sigmoidoscopies, in the U.S., we recommend every five to 10 years because there are studies showing that there's a benefit for individuals that underwent flexible sigmoidoscopy every five years, but there's also evidence for benefit if flexible sigmoidoscopy is done every 10 years. So five to 10 years, and some healthcare systems choose five and some choose 10. For the CT colonography, the recommended interval is five years. For the multi-target stool DNA test, the interval is three years. And once somebody 
is screened by one of these modalities at the next time that they're eligible for screening, again, they'll have a variety of options of screening tests, and they can certainly choose something different if that's what makes sense at that time. And again, the field is evolving, and we probably won't be surprised if new things happen in the next decade. So we've kind of talked about colorectal cancer screening, and we emphasize that because it's so important. But what about when to end surveillance? So I still do a lot of colonoscopies, and some providers send me patients for surveillance colonoscopies well into their 80s. When should we stop surveillance colonoscopies? Is that really good practice? That's a great question, and one that we don't have great evidence for. So we don't know when we should cut people off for surveillance. Truly, it makes sense in individuals that have a life expectancy of at least five to 10 years. But within that, there's modeling studies to show that more than the, just the chronological age, the person's comorbidities and other risk factors, such as if they're men or women, what their lifestyle is like, kind of determines if they will benefit from future surveillance. So at this time, the decision really needs to be individualized, particularly as individuals start getting over the age of 80. And the factors to take into account would be their prior screening or surveillance history, what was found on those exams, their personal risk factors, and also their life expectancy and their value and preferences should go into that decision making. Sounds like a great conversation in person to balance those risks and benefits. Ozma, so far we've focused on screening for the average risk individual, but what about that group of patients who are considered at higher risk? If you could briefly summarize, who are these essential groups that we need to identify in practice, and when should we start screening? That's a really important area, Brian, because we are really bad at taking a good family history, and there's multiple studies to show how poor we are at taking a family history. And also a lot of patients don't know their family history. So it becomes quite a challenging task to understand what family history they have and what risk that puts them at. Individuals who have one first degree relative with colorectal cancer. First degree really has to be either mom, dad, siblings, or children. The next question to ask those individuals is, what was the age of that first degree relative at the time that they were diagnosed with colon cancer? So say it's their father who was diagnosed with colon cancer. My next question is, at what age approximately was your father diagnosed with colon cancer? If that age is younger than 60, then we recommend that those individuals start screening 10 years earlier than the average risk individuals. Instead of 50, they would start screening at age 40. And colonoscopy is the preferred modality because they are considered at increased risk of colorectal cancer. If the first-degree relative was over the age of 60 at the time of their cancer diagnosis, then we recommend that they still start screening 10 years earlier at age 40. However, any modality is fine. So of those seven modalities, they could pick whichever one works best for them. And if that screening exam then is negative or is non-revealing, then they should follow average risk in follow-up screening intervals. And this applies not just to colon cancers, but also if they have known records that their first degree relative had advanced polyps, advanced histology, which again is very difficult to find out completely, but to the extent that we can, we try to. If the first degree relative only has polyps, 
either adenomatous polyps or other polyps that are not considered high risk, then they should truly follow average risk screening. And that's one of the areas where we could perhaps reduce overscreening by providing that education. Also, if individuals have more than one first degree relative, then we should really be taking a thorough history and trying to see if it really is to the point where it meets criteria for one of the hereditary colon cancer syndromes, such as HNPCC. And if they have multiple second degree relatives, two or more, then we also recommend starting screening early at age 40. However, if they only have one second degree relative, such as their grandfather was diagnosed with colon or rectal cancer or an aunt or an uncle, then we actually want them to follow average risk screening intervals. And there's decent amount of evidence supporting some of these recommendations that's summarized in our guideline document. Wonderful, a lot of information to digest there, thank you. And again, for our listeners, this is such a critical guideline and will be available online March 4th and in print in March as well. So Asma, although this guideline was not meant to focus on quality, many of our listeners perform colonoscopies. What do you think are the three to four key quality indicators for colonoscopy? What should we try to achieve for cecal intubation rates or adenoma detection rates and withdrawal times? I'm glad you brought that up, Brian, because quality is paramount to any screening program. And there's quality indicators for any of these screening modalities, but because it seems that either the primary test might be a colonoscopy, or if a primary test is different, then it may lead to a colonoscopy. It's very important to have a high quality colonoscopy program for anybody that's performing these procedures. And we have laid out some guidance in that regard. For instance, we want for physicians to try to achieve a cecal intubation rate of 95% or higher in screening colonoscopies. The withdrawal time should be six minutes or longer, ideally about eight to nine minutes. And the adenoma detection rate, the threshold is 25% for an average risk screening population. But we acknowledge that that's the minimum benchmark. And truly, what most practices should aim for is somewhere between 40 to 45 percent for an ADR. However, if the ADR falls below 25 percent, then there should be some thought and effort given towards improving that ADR through either education or other systematic interventions that have great evidence behind them. Wonderful. Three great quality indicators we should all achieve. 95% sequel intubation rate, withdrawal time, minimum of six minutes, eight minutes to 10 minutes might be better, and a 25% adenoma detection rate. Ozma, lastly, what about the role of aspirin for colorectal cancer reduction? Is this worth recommending to our patients? And if so, what dose, 81, 325, and for how long? Brian, this comes up so often for patients. And a lot of them are taking aspirin anyways for cardiovascular protection, either primary or secondary. Aspirin is not a substitute for colon cancer screening. However, it is associated with reducing the risk of colorectal cancer, but there are some caveats. In individuals that are between the ages of 50 to 69, have a cardiovascular disease risk of at least 10%, have at least a 10-year life expectancy, and are willing to take aspirin for at least 10 years. 
So with those caveats, aspirin does have a role and can be recommended, whether it should be a baby aspirin or a full strength. So for colon cancer prevention, both seem to work. However, with the uh, full strength aspirin, there's a higher risk of GI hemorrhage. Therefore, a baby aspirin might be fine, but for cardiovascular or other reasons, if they need to take a full strength, that's fine also. Ozma, this truly has been incredibly educational and informative. Thank you so much. Any last thoughts for our listeners? Uh, Brian, just that it's important to get the message out. We should be encouraging our patients for colon cancer screening. And in the guideline, one thing we've done is taken some time and outlined that colon cancer screening shouldn't just be opportunistic, meaning waiting for the patients to come to us. It's high time that all of us providers, healthcare systems, think of ways to reaching our patients in an organized manner and bringing them to colon cancer screening. The COVID pandemic has revealed a lot of disparities and we need to do a concerted effort in bringing not just the convenient patients that are already coming to clinic to screening, but also what are we doing for our patients at large that may not be coming to clinics or may not be plugged into a healthcare system. So those are some of the things that we should truly be marching towards because colon cancer is a public health issue and we really need to join forces to be able to address and tackle it. Great points. And we also know that colorectal cancer month is coming up next month and we need to publicize this. This is something wonderful we can do for our patients. Ozma, once again, thank you so much for your expertise on this important topic. We really appreciate it. And for our listeners, uh, look for the guidelines online and in print later in the month. Thank you so much. Thank you, Brian.